You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit, philanthropic, and business worlds. Today, our guest is Robert Kaplan. Robert was born and raised in Prairie Village, Kansas, and went on to graduate from the University of Kansas. After Kansas, he moved on to Harvard Business School with an MBA in 1983. Robert Kaplan joined Goldman Sachs Group and moved up the ranks to eventually become the vice chairman with global responsibility for the firm's investment banking and investment management divisions. He became a partner in 1990, and following his 23-year career at Goldman Sachs, he became a faculty member at Harvard Business School. He was a senior associate dean and the Martin Marshall Professor of Management Practice. He left Harvard in 2015 when he was named the head of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, where he served until September of 2021. After the Federal Reserve Bank, Mr. Kaplan joined the firm of Draper, Richards, and Kaplan, a venture philanthropy firm headquartered in Menlo Park, California. Welcome, Robert. Welcome. Great to be here, Gary. Well, you've had a very interesting career. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about it with you and then learning more about your venture philanthropy work. You grew up in Kansas, it says, in your bio, and went to the University of Kansas, so you're a Jayhawk. Uh, what did you study in undergraduate school? Business and minor in English, but major in business. So you kind of knew your business career was going to be with you from the beginning. Yeah, I thought I was going to go to law school, and I almost went to law school, but I decided instead to be a business person. And very successful one at that. And you went to Harvard. Harvard did not want me in the business school. They, uh, well, I didn't apply either. But <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to get in. But it, was it a good experience for you? It was a great experience. I went to University of Kansas and the, and then, as you said, Harvard Business School. Yeah, great experience. And I love the case method. And then I went back later and taught the case method. And it's it's fun on the student side and the teaching side. I mean, one of the one of the things I love to talk about in business when I'm doing workshops, whether it's nonprofit or other workshops, and teaching people is talking about case studies because you know I, I was trained as a banker originally. I was in commercial banking for 15 years. And, you know, the idea of doing post-mortems on the businesses that fail or the ones that are successful, why why they become successful, how did it happen, you know, et cetera, was very good. I was uh, I was lucky to have that experience. When you when you left Harvard, did you think you were going to go to Wall Street right away or you that was your target or you had other ideas? You know, I'd really not spend much time in New York City. So the idea of going to New York City kind of scared me. So <laughs> I uh, my closest friend in business school was going to Wall Street. We trained for the marathon. He helped get me, he kind of get me, warmed me up to the idea. And so then I wound up joining Goldman Sachs. And when your entry, what was your entry position there? Associate, yeah. typical uh, bottom of the totem pole. Bottom of the totem pole, 18 hours a day and, and very little time to sleep. <laughs> well, it was fun for me. I, I mean, I love the market since I was little. Um, taught by my father. And uh, and if you love the markets, Wall Street's a fun place. Right, right. Did you have any mentors, uh, uh, you know, in, in the business world as you started out? 
Lots of them. I mean, my parents were good mentors, but if to have a successful career, you should have several mentors, and I did. So I got coaching and advice and observed lots of senior leaders. And I picked and choose between different things I saw that I liked and I didn't like. And, uh, and I still have lots of mentors and coaches today. So I've always adopted that approach. I think one of the interesting challenges about the youth today and as they graduate college and start jobs is they're, they don't, they're not that receptive to coaching. They have this feeling like they know what they're doing. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's a, so the, people ask me all the time, can you tell me in 30 seconds the difference between a successful and unsuccessful leader? And I always, same thing, openness to learning, openness to seeking, sharing information and seeking advice. You never get too big for your britches where you don't need to learn. We all make mistakes. Uh, as you're emerging in your career, you've got to be learning, but that process never ends. Right. And what happens to people who don't take coaching well or are not open to learning, they, they run out of gas. They hit a wall. I spent seven years with the Technion, Israeli Institute of Technology, which is the major tech university in Israel that produces a lot of uh, business opportunities out of there. And the one thing I learned working with the Israelis, though I was raising money here on the West Coast for them, but working with the professors and, and some of the Nobel laureates there, was they're not afraid to fail. They, they looked at what are we going to learn? That, what lesson will we learn from this failure? Because uh, right. everything's not going to be successful. Yeah, I, listen, you got to, there's a difference between working on a project that fails or doing something where you bet the ranch and you fail. And sometimes those are, sometimes those are not the same thing, even though it may feel like the same thing. I think in your own career, you'd be wise to be prudent and making sure you're learning and getting trained. But in the projects you're doing, I, I, it's, it, it's, not, it's not a bad idea to stretch yourself and be willing to, to fail and have setbacks. And now a moment for one of our sponsors. Jorgensen HR believes that the employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation, growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen works to ensure that employees are engaged, well-trained and led by owners and management that are passionate about the success of their company and its employees. Jorgensen HR provides outsourced HR on an interim or permanent basis. They provide an audit of the company's HR policies, including work plans, procedures and compliance with labor laws. They provide affirmative action audits for companies that are required by law to have an annual report. They handle workplace investigations for harassment and discrimination among their HR solutions. Jorgensen HR, results-oriented, driven by passion, guided by expertise. Jorgensen can be reached at jorgensenhr.com, J-O-R-G-E-N-S-E-N-H-R.com. Let me go, go back to your career a little bit. You left Wall Street or you left Goldman Sachs, uh, obviously in a very senior executive position, decided to go back to Harvard to be a professor. What made you make that decision? What was uh, what was uh, drawing you to back to Harvard? I I kind of was inadvertent. I was I was in Boston to apologize to apologize to a client, which happened every once in a while. <laughs> and on the way to the airport, I stopped and had a meeting with the dean of Harvard Business School just to catch up. And in the last three minutes of the meeting, he said to me, you never want to teach here, would you? And I said, you know, I never thought about it. I didn't really think that was even an option. 
And he said, you know, I think you ought to consider it. And he said, what would you want to teach? He said, something financial. I said, I don't think so. And so we talked about either teaching entrepreneurship or leadership. And he had me meet then a few weeks later with the fellow who ran the business unit uh, for the leadership group. His name was Nithin Noria, and he later became the dean. And Nithin said in the first five minutes, why don't you just take a leave of absence for your job first semester and teach here and go back to your job. And so it took me about a year to work up the nerve, but that's how it happened. It wasn't something I had my mind on, but when the idea came up, I was intrigued by it and I eventually did it thinking I would go back, but I loved it so much and I learned a lot that it gave me the backbone to go back to Goldman and, and to uh, resign and retire. And I thought I'd learn more and be more challenged to make bigger contribution to the world at that point by moving on. Could you say there are maybe two or three things at Goldman that you learned that you took with you in the rest of your career? Yeah, oh, well, definitely many things. Uh, but the, uh, probably the most important, be yourself, be authentic, sp be willing to speak up when you disagree. Not, you know, all the time, but you got to speak up. And if you disagree, you got to you, you, you can't pretend you do. You speak up and think and act like an owner. Think and act like an owner in everything. You see trash on the floor. It's it not somebody else's job to pick it up. You pick it up. And so that those thoughts got into my mindset. And then the other thing I was a big I learned a lot there is coaching, coaching, prioritizing, but particularly coaching people well in advance of the year-end review. And I learned that if people are coached, more often than not, they'll improve and they'll pleasantly surprise you if you coach them. I was trained by one of my mentors a long time ago, and it was, you never want that year-end review you give someone to be a surprise. That's right. They should know That's what's coming. That's a good way to lose someone. Yeah. That's absolutely right. You, you, you don't want to have surprises. And a lot of people wrongly think that the year-end review is the time to coach somebody and it's it's not it's too late it's the verdict and you'll lose trust and people will quit over getting surprised in a year-end review and how do you deal with workers uh or or fellow employees that are maybe not top of the game but are doing a good job but not a an eight nine or ten on a, on a rating scale they're like a five or a six well so that's an interesting one um there's there's somebody who is a high performer. There's somebody who's more middle of the pack. And I always like to think you, you want to focus on coaching them and maybe they have the potential, not in everything, but one or two things to excel. And then you have people who are underperformers and who are struggling and even with coaching are struggling. And I found as difficult as it is, sometimes you'll improve the morale of the whole group if you uh, manage those people out and, and help them get onto something they can excel at. Mm -hmm. And so you have to adapt your coaching to each of those uh, uh, groups. Very good. When you look at your career at Harvard Business School, uh, obviously you wrote three books somewhere in there on, all on leadership. Um, so your, your interests always kind of roll to the leadership side of things. They, they did. I was always a human behavior person, organizational behavior person. And at Goldman Sachs, uh, I ran divisions, but I chaired the partnership committee. 
I chaired the Pine Street Leadership Program, which was our leadership training. I always gravitated to the organizational behavior leadership act, the softer elements, coaching, always gravitated to. So it was a natural thing. Now, my first five years at Harvard, I wrote a couple of three articles, but I didn't have anything to say in a book. So Harvard Business Review had come to me after a few articles did well and said, why don't you write a book? And I, I don't have a book in me. But after teaching for five years and doing a lot of work with different leaders, companies, I finally realized maybe maybe I've got something to say. And that's where I wrote the, the first book, What to Ask the Person in the Mirror. And how do you feel about putting it out there for people to see? And what was the receptivity of it? Well, it's it, it's a great experience. And, you know, people don't realize when you write a book, you're, you're putting yourself out there. Right. And what you don't, I don't really care how many people bought it at the time, but I didn't want to make a fool of myself either. And I like to think I was writing something that would be useful. So I had a number of readers, uh, friends, uh, nieces, nephews, uh, also, <laughs> who like I'd say, is this even a hell? Is this any good? And after the first book, the first book did reasonably well. And that gave me the courage. Actually, I had an idea for a second book. And it gave Harvard Business Review the confidence to let me write a second book. And then that one, I had a little more confidence that this kind of thing would resonate. But you never know. And, and it's the most, as I kid around, it's the most retail of retail products. It's the most entrepreneurial. You create something from nothing. And then you go out there and you flog the thing. You try to sell it. Right. And uh, it's actually, it's a fantastic entrepreneurial experience. Well, people have talked to me about writing a book on leadership in the nonprofit sector, but my heart really is with Raymond Chandler in the mystery world. But so far, I have uh, not gotten to either one. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that. In order to write a book, the other thing I learned, you've got to have a passion for whatever it is you're writing, because it's a slog to write a book, and you've got to really have a passion for what you're writing, strong desire to get it out there, or else it's... It's a really uh, uh, challenging slog otherwise. And now a word from one of our sponsors. Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, founded in 1946, provides businesses and nonprofits with insurance services throughout California and the country. They provide business and commercial, personal insurance, workers' comp, and benefits. They specialize in churches and synagogues in the nonprofit world, and they handle businesses of all sizes. Thank you, Jeff Burkett, president of Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, for sponsoring our podcast, The Road to Philanthropy. www.burkettinsurance.com. That's B-E-R-K-E-T-T, insurance.com. Now, when you, you're now with Draper Richards and Kaplan, Kaplan being yourself, a venture philanthropy firm, have you always been involved in philanthropy through your career, or is this something new for you? In my early 30s, I joined a, a, my first nonprofit board called every with an organization called Everybody Wins, which read it was reading to kids during their lunch hour. And I used to take a group of people from Goldman on a bus, 150 people on a bus. And I'd read to a child during his lunch hour for did that for uh, years. And then from that, I got more confidence and I helped start something uh, with a woman named Justine Stamen called the Teak Fellowship, which 
took at-risk kids and helped them in after-school programs and to get into high school and into college. And then I got involved in medical research through Project ALS through mutual friends. And anyhow, the point of it is I'd worked on some early stage nonprofits. They resonated with me. Uh, and then I had a chance, once I went to Harvard, I met uh, Bill Draper and Robin Richards, and they were already running a small venture philanthropy firm. I wanted to do that. And we talked and compared notes and we decided, you know what, let's go partners and join forces. And we've been together ever since. I think that was 13 years ago. Hmm. We just celebrated our 20 year anniversary. Wow. And I was with them for the last 13 years. But we went from a three or $5 million fund to today we're in the neighborhood of a $90 million fund. And we have 36 employees, 10 managing directors, and we incubate or, or help uh, um, uh, work with about 20 to 25 uh, early stage entrepreneurs every year. And uh, so for my audience who may not be that familiar with venture philanthropy, define it for us. What is venture philanthropy? So here's venture philanthropy. Venture philanthropy means it's got to be a, uh, for most of what we do are nonprofits. Uh, people may not realize in certain countries, Kenya is a good example. The concept of a nonprofit doesn't really exist. So if you're going to do something, it's going to be a for-profit. Let's say we've done 200 plus or minus ventures, 170 been not-for-profits. We, we want to do something that is early stage. What does that mean? It's a concept that has at least been beta tested and proven, but not so far along that they don't need our help. Average budget, maybe it's $250,000, we We do lots of due diligence. We try to pick something, uh, an organization that we think has gonna have a disruptive, positive disruptive impact in in affecting an at-risk community or some other pressing need in society. We look for a model that we can shape to deliver that impact. And then third, we look for a leader that's coachable and is willing to go through a three-year sprint with us to build their board, build their team, change the model so they can, can become a sustainable nonprofit. Uh, average budget at the end of three years is I think in the neighborhood of two and a half million dollars. Budget is not the be all end all, but our mission in life is to take an early stage social uh, uh, venture and turn it into a sustainable nonprofit. And then we roll off the board. We're still available to them, but not as formally as board members or donors. And we've done that about 200 times. So in a way it's modeled after venture, venture capital in a way where you put someone on the board, you get people, you, you hire people and you engage with the founder to make the, make the right decisions for the company to grow and hopefully cash out at some point. You're doing the same thing That's in the right. nonprofit. And sometimes we learn, and I learned this in the for-profit stage too, sometimes the fastest way to grow is to go slow, meaning get the model right, get a model that works for delivering the product or service. And then once you've got the model down, then go, as opposed to, you know, there's a mantra in venture capital, grow or die, grow or die. Right. And sometimes in the social enterprise world, you can try to grow before you're ready and too fast, and you never quite get a model that works with a team that works. 
And so we're always wrestling with those issues and trade-offs. I'm on a nonprofit board right now. Uh, it's about a three-year-old startup called Safe Parking LA, where we basically have 10 parking lots throughout the city, where if you live oh. in your car and you're homeless, we'll get you in there at night with security. We have wow. counselors, MSWs. We help with transitional housing and everything else. And we're measuring, obviously measuring the standards. But the challenge there has been that the people that got involved originally were homeless people. I mean, uh, people that advocated for the homeless, but the board wasn't made up of the quality of board member you need to grow in the enterprise necessarily. And 90% of the funding comes from government sources. So only 10% from individual donors. So the the model is, you know, not really good. And uh, my, my, my role on there, I'm vice chairman now is to help build the board and get the right people on board, you know, to make this thing grow. So we deal with this all the time. And listen, someone who becomes a social entrepreneur, it's because they have a deep passion for a cause. They're not doing it for money. A, a lot of early stage social entrepreneurs, you ask them how much you make and they're getting, they're taking the bare minimum to barely be able to make ends meet. Also, the reason you're doing, you want to solve the problem. You may not be good at building a team. You may not be, you may think a board is a nuisance where I think we're trying to work with them and make them realize you can't do this alone. If you want to build a sustainable nonprofit, you need to build a board. They can help you. They may not want coaching. They may, you know, they, they want to pursue this, this uh, cause. And so these are, the, these are the things we're working through all the time with social entrepreneurs to get them to the next level. It's fun, it's challenging, and it's worth it. And the world needs social entrepreneurs today more than ever because the government can do certain things, businesses and business leaders can do other things, and the gaps, early childhood literacy, the digital divide, skills training, you name it, the whole ecosystem, you need to get into the gaps at the ground level, and that's what social entrepreneurs do. Yeah, yeah. My partner, Paula, is involved in uh, early childhood education. That's her field. And now she consults. And one of the challenges in that field is one is the, the low pay that teachers get. So there's no continuity and consistency. And, uh, and she's in the Jewish world of non of uh, preschools and that there's no community support coming in. Uh, right. you know, the big federations don't think that early childhood is important, <laughs> you know. And on my end, it's, it's very challenging, you know, for her. So this is a good example of a segment that's, Right now, we're, I, I live in Dallas, and I was just right. looking at the scores for the state of Texas and Dallas, and you'd be, and I, you're always, I'm always surprised to how poor the uh, low the percentage is of kids that are reading at grade level by third grade. In affluent areas, very high, but broadly so disappointing. And a lot of, there's a high correlation between uh, low rate reading scores and whether or not you're dis- economically disadvantaged. So what's the answer? I believe you got we got to focus more on zero to five, more affordable daycare, full day versus half day pre-K. To your point, salaries have got to be higher to get people who will do it. And this is an example of uh, social entrepreneurs might be able to do more than just the government in getting in there and trying new models that could work and it's a pressing issue and this is the workforce of the future in the united states 
And so it's worth it. We thank our sponsor, Hot Dog Business Growth. Hot Dog Business Growth has over 40 years of practical experience. We've developed best practices for the execution of ideas, professional growth, constructive communication, employee relations, sales strategies, including compensation, pricing, marketing, and much more, such as CEO and leadership counseling, both in the for-profit and non-profit sectors, customer service assessments and training, sales counseling for individuals, sales teams, sales management support, and pricing strategies. We focus on team synergy. Our leader, Joel Volk, has spent years building the type of team synergy that results in positive relationships and improved results. We have a team of 11 consultants working in the profit and nonprofit world. As Joel says, hot dog, it's a wonderful life. You can find us at hotdogbizgrowth.com. That's hotdogbizgrowth.com. Some of us think it's challenging that, you know, the future of the United States is really on the education system and how we bring people up. You know, I went to public school. I'm, I just had my 50th high school reunion. I'm a couple of years older than you. And you know, I'm amazed at how successful our class was. When you look at all the people that we went to school with and the hundred people that showed up, you know, at the our reunion, very successful people. We all did very, very well. And we didn't come from wealthy backgrounds. We were basically a blue collar you know, working class kind of kind of high school, but we all had the the fundamentals of good learning, and we all went to college and we did well. Not the best colleges necessarily, but you know, whatever the best college is, you know, uh, and that's yeah. We're and and by the way, it's not for lack of money. We're spending a lot of money. If you look at us versus other countries, it's not that we're not spending a lot of money on education, but our results are are slipping. Uh, and I think this is one where social entrepreneurs, people like us, business leaders have to step in and, you know, reading programs for at-risk kids, helping to uh, incubate early stage nonprofit daycare or for-profit daycare. And, and it, it used to be this was an issue and it would be a nice thing to fix. Today, the fastest growing demographic groups in this country are now a pretty big percentage of the population. And this is now more than a nice thing to do. This is if we want to have good GDP growth. It's the right thing. Yeah. Workforce productivity. We've got to tackle this. And I think whatever we're doing isn't quite working. Now, you talked about your social entrepreneurs that you, you support, and a lot of them don't take a lot of money out of their nonprofits for salaries. How do you view uh, overhead and salaries in a nonprofit in general? How, how, what's your view of that? Well, so this is always, you're always trying to figure out what percentage of the money is going to the, ultimately to the constituents that you're serving. Now, that doesn't mean you're giving them money, but in the product or service you're providing. I think overhead is fine, as long as that overhead is in service of providing the, the, the product or service to your constituencies. And a lot of the things that are very valuable out there are providing a service through either a counselor or a, a volunteer or a teacher or an assistant teacher. And so we try to look at that in every organization and figure out. Now, the other things we also want to encourage our people to do is where necessary, invest in IT, invest in financial management, uh, and invest in some of the softer stuff that's more indirect, especially if you want to build it and scale it. Right. Very, very true. 
one of the hard things, you know, I look at uh, a lot of nonprofits as I'm consulting with them and I look at their overhead percentages, where are they with respect to revenue? And I'm kind of in that 15 to 18% is a good place to be. Uh, but I remember I was on the board of the American Red Cross of Bay Area chapter, which is a very large uh, geographic. It was basically Monterey to the Oregon border. But everybody yeah. was always complaining about the CEO making a million dollars a year. And it was like, well, she's running a billion dollar company in a way. Yeah. You know, what is the problem with that? You know, because the revenues were always in, in shape, but people always question that. Well, so this is where you get controversy, particularly in these grant, big grant giving organizations. You talked about uh, Salvation Army, uh, uh, American Red Cross, uh, United Way. And yeah, the CEO is going to have to be paid well. And what people don't realize, a, a lot of their staff is develop are development people. Yes. You know, they're always raising money. And so it's a tension. But I don't know the right answer all the time. But I think as long as it's right to raise the question, the board and donors need to look at it. And uh, I think it's healthy just to keep a, to keep an appropriate balance. If anybody, any of my listeners want to have an interest in talking to, to your venture philanthropy fund, how would they go about doing that? Just, just Google Draper Richards Kaplan or DRK. And you see we have a website and we have contact information. And, and please feel free to, uh, to contact us. Very good. DRK or Draper Richards Kaplan. Got it. Got it. Uh, and how often do you get from Dallas to Menlo Park, or do you not travel that much? I'm there all. I was just there last week. We had, uh, we had an offsite we do once a year for uh, alumni organizations of our effort, current grantees, and donors. So we had a room full of 30 people, at, uh, 300 people, I should say. At, a, at an offsite, we do that once a year, but I, I, we now have offices. I was in Boston at Harvard, we opened an office, it's on Boylston Street. We opened an, we have an office in Menlo Park and El Camino, and I'm out there frequently. And then we're all, oh, actually opening an office in Texas, in Dallas, which will be opened uh, by January. And, the, and the, you know, the reason for that is there's just enormous opportunity and unmet need. Right. Uh, so we work nationwide, but no, I get out to Menlo Park all the time. Well, I like the idea of getting your uh, grantees together. Uh, one yes. of the, I did a lot of work with the Haas Foundation out of the Bay Area, and they've always done yes. that for years. Uh, and I think it's important uh, because otherwise the nonprofits in a silo by themselves and they, they're working with you, but they don't have know what others are doing and how they're doing uh, well. So with Drake Rich's Capital, most important thing we do is work with the social entrepreneurs so they're not alone. They're working 70 hours a week. They can feel alone. They can go through, all, it's very stressful and we don't want them to feel alone. We wanna coach them, mentor them, and yeah, create a peer group of cohorts where it's cool to be a social entrepreneur. Sometimes in their communities, they go out and everybody they see or they went to school with is making money and is it a you know for-profit organization? And and they they wonder what the heck are they doing? So we want to create a peer group where they get advice, mentoring, coaching, and we coach them a lot so that they realize how much we value them and they're not alone. Well, that's one of the hardest lessons for young people to learn today is it's not just about the money. Uh, my daughter is now 30 years of age, but I remember telling her when she went off to college. And she went to BU, so it was a, a nice experience for her in in your old college town. But it was 
you know, find your passion, have fun and, you know, learn your, and I said to her two other things, take a public speaking class and a basic accounting class. Cause you're always going to need those two things. And, uh, yeah. From there, she did well, you know, and but I have others that I know, other people's kids that just, they just they're just chasing the dollar and they don't have any internal reward for what they're doing. So the biggest conversation I've had as a professor and since then and regularly is figure out, try to figure out what your passion is. Not an easy question to answer. When did you shine in your life? When you shine, what are you doing? What's the environment? What's the mission? What makes it? What is it about what you're doing that makes you shine? And then the trick is to fit that with your strengths and weaknesses. Right. And, and I mean a honest assessment with feedback from people that observe you about your strengths and weaknesses. But passion is the rocket fuel, to your point. Passion is the rocket fuel that drives high performance. Yeah. Nobody I've met who chases, goes after something for the money. If you don't have a passion for it, you'll never get to the money. But money tends to be backhand loaded after sustained high performance for many years. And passion is the rocket fuel that will allow you to stay with it on good days and bad days. Well, that certainly was true yeah. in my career. Yeah. It's the most important thing. And by the way, if you're doing something where you think there's no money in this, I love it. I don't know. If you're great at it, you'll make it work. Very you good. know, people have been full of surprises. Uh in this kind of thing, if you have a passion for what you're doing. So when you're not being a leader, you're not being a venture fan, a philanthropist, what do you do for fun on the side? Uh, well, I've got two small, uh, I've got two boys and that's a, that's a full-time job in and of itself. <laughs> and so physically and mentally. And so uh, being with them, coaching and mentoring them, going to their, their practices, uh, and uh, trying to help them with, with schoolwork and uh, everything in their lives, that's all consuming. So I'm not doing, I'm not doing a whole lot else uh, when I'm not doing either uh, uh, social enterprise or other work I'm trying to do, either coaching, mentoring, speaking. If I have any spare time, it's with my kids. Well, that's a good thing to do. I, I have to say that I'm, uh, even though she's a 30-year-old daughter now, she still sees me every week and we do things from going to ball games to going to concerts to whatever it might be, but stay in touch and stay close. It's it's a good thing. I'd like to, I'm, 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 my job is to make it that far, as far as you've got. <laughs> well, my daughter and I are working through every baseball stadium in the, in the league. And our only problem is her job, her job gets in the way now. So <laughs> we've, All right. we've been to a third of them. We're working on the rest. <laughs> oh, that's, that's cool. I've heard other, I've heard other, parents with their kids do that try to go to every stadium that, that's great well that's her passion so uh it's a good thing to do well thank you very much for being part of our podcast uh, uh it's been a great interview and a and great time spending with you and uh, hopefully our paths will cross again sometime in the future all right thank you gary and thanks for what you're doing thank you so much thank you for listening we want to stay connected with you be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.